Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Wild Voices Project. Today I'm speaking to my good friend Carolyn Thompson. I was lucky enough to spend six of my 12 months living in the Indonesian jungle with Kaz. We had many a wonderful day together searching for orangutans or following red langer monkeys for hours at a time, wading our way through the waist-deep mud and finding plenty of ways to trip and slip over. In this conversation, we talk about field field work mistakes that she has learned from, writing children's books to inspire conservation, becoming a PhD student without being a natural scientist, and how she has crowdfunded her own PhD to the tune of over £17,000. Carolyn is a British-Swiss primatologist who grew up in Scotland, Indonesia and Norway. She has spent the past 10 years working in the field of wild primate behaviour and its implications for conservation. The majority of her research has focused on Asian primates, with the exception of lemurs in Madagascar. She is currently studying towards a doctorate degree at University College London and the Zoological Society of London, focusing on critically endangered gibbon decline. In her spare time, she is a keen author and, as I've said, writes children's books to support conservation efforts and raise important awareness about threatened species. You can support Carolyn's PhD research on the newly discovered Skywalker Hulock Gibbon at www.gofundme.com forward slash Skywalker Gibbon Research, which features amazing graphic design by www.dave McCall, that's Dave M C C A you can find out more about Carolyn on her website, www.thompsoncarolyn, that's T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N-C-A-R-O-L-Y-N.com, or on her Twitter, at Gibbon Research, or on Instagram, at Gibbon Research. Now, I really hope you enjoy this episode, and let's dive in. So, um, have you managed in the last few days to build in any time uh, outdoors or in nature, uh, apart from me um, keeping you from your your family walk in the outdoors this morning? (laughs) No, I try and um, go out all the time for walks. I mean, you know me, I absolutely love the outdoors. I remember going on many a bird walk with you and learning a lot. (laughs) Indeed. I remember one point, do you remember that time? that I started singing like Snow White in the forest and suddenly all those birds came flocking and you got so overexcited and you would <laughs> quickly keep singing. That sounds like me, yeah. <laughs> but yes, I mean, just some walks around the countryside. Um, my parents live in Buckinghamshire, so it's pretty beautiful around here. And then my partner's parents live in Kent. So there's always amazing opportunities for strolling around and it's perfect, I think Christmas time, it's perfect time of year to go. The weather's so crisp and it's just so beautiful. Amazing, like, sunsets. Um, and when you're, when you're working in London and you're teaching and you're doing your research, do you manage to find time then? Or is it a little bit harder? It's, it has been a lot harder because I only just started in September. So I've been teaching three days a week. And obviously trying to squeeze in my PhD around that. So it's, it's quite a juggle. And then I, I'm also currently working on two books. Um, but I actually live next to Richmond Park, which is amazing. So that's where you, you get to spot reindeer. 
So I try and go there and at some uh, in the summer I was actually going there to go horse riding as well. Mm. Uh, it's a little bit cold at the moment, um, but it's a beautiful place to go strolling around, that's for sure. So I do try and squeeze it in, but I, I'm going to, news resolution is to get better at this and to spend more time outdoors. <laughs> and is the outdoors something that's been important to you since a young age? What What sort of role did wildlife play for you, wildlife or nature play for you when you were growing up, if any? Oh my goodness, it was huge. So my, I mean, both my parents have been hiking since they were younger. I've been hiking since I was in the womb. Um, my mum is Swiss, so we go to Switzerland every year and we always go hiking in the Alps. And then when I was younger, I grew up in Scotland, Indonesia and Norway. So wow. there were always opportunities at the weekends. My, I mean, that was our go-to. My dad was always like, every weekend without fail, he'd be like, right, let's go on a massive you know, four, five hour hike. Um, and that was how he like kept us occupied. And he used to set us like little challenges on the way, like we had to spot certain birds or find a certain color of flower. And it was a lovely way of engaging us with nature. So we'd learn so much on route as well as we were as we were wandering around. So yeah, so I've always, always been brought up amongst nature. Um, I guess in Indonesia, it was slightly different we didn't really go hiking as such, um, but we often, when my dad had time off work, he would take us, we'd go to different islands and we would always go see various animals. And that's actually where I had my first monkey encounter was in Bali in the monkey forest. Mm. And yeah, I always tell this story because it always makes me laugh. But I saw a monkey and it, it did like this grimace at me and was baring its teeth. And I was so excited. And I was like, Mom, Mom, look, this monkey's smiling at me. <laughs> my mom my mom was petrified. She was like, no, no, it's just not smiling at you. Let's just back up. <laughs> I, always think, I always think that. He was smiling at me. <laughs> it was destiny. <laughs> it, was it destiny in a sense? Was that an important moment that's led you on to focus on primates later in life? Or, or did that come a bit later, that decision to focus on primate stuff? I think it came a little bit later, but I think having been brought up in an environment where you are surrounded by so many exotic animals, I think it, it does open up opportunities. You do start thinking about what you could do in the future and you think what is possible. I think it, if I'd just been brought up in the UK, I might not have actually thought, oh, this is possible to study, you know, um, monkeys or reptiles or something a little bit more exotic. Um, I think it just kind of opened those doors to me when I was older. Um, but no, at that point, I mean, I was I was only like three years old. So I had no, I probably had no idea even what the monkey was, to be honest. <laughs> um, but when you were doing when you were doing the long hikes at the weekends with your dad, was um, what sort of age were you then? Um, that was about five onwards. I mean, when we used to go, even when we went um, hiking in Switzerland. I mean, I. You know, as young as three, I was you know, walking very much on my own and I was very insistent that I would walk on my own. But obviously I couldn't do a mega, mega hike. But I mean, and I'd say by the age of five, I was, you know, keeping up with the adults. And, you know, they used to call me the little mountain goat because I, <laughs> I just had so much energy. And I would just like run up the mountains because I was just so excited to be there. And I'd be like hopping over all the rocks. And yeah, so I was a little mountain goat. 
And has that um, has that childhood of lots and lots of hiking and exploring nature, and also living in different different countries as well, has that helped you to adapt uh, fairly readily to the kind of lifestyle that comes with conservation field work, where there's lots of physical endurance needed and some mental endurance, and also lots of traveling between different countries? Definitely, a really good question. Um, definitely, I would agree with that. I think. Just having grown up in all these different places and also, I mean, for example, whilst we were living in Indonesia, we used to go traveling all the time. I mean, my grandmother, she traveled a lot as well. And at one point she'd been living in Bangkok and my granddad was living in the Philippines. So there were always these amazing opportunities to go visit new countries. And I do I do believe that really shaped me and, and helped me in my, in my future career because in, in the sense that new cultures were seen as a really exciting thing um, but not super super scary um, we were so used to traveling everywhere that we were you know getting on planes or getting on a bus was kind of second nature and just being able to adapt and meet new people I mean I, I always um, pride myself on that being one of my traits is that I love I love meeting new people and I think that really helped when I was younger to meet all different varieties of people. And in fact, one of my best friends in Indonesia growing up, I, I didn't actually like my international playgroup. And I always used to say, no, no, I want to stay at home and, and play with some of the local Indonesian children. And that's exactly what I used to do. In the end, my mum kind of gave in a little bit and said, no, no, I know actually she's going to probably be better off playing at home with these local children. And I got so much out of it. And we had so much fun together. We couldn't communicate, but we, you know, you often see kids together and they end up, you know, playing all types of games and they don't actually need to speak the same language. So, yes, it, def it definitely helped me later in my career just to be more adaptable. Mm. And was interacting with local people something that was part of your childhood in, in Norway? And, well, I was going to say Scotland, obviously, there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but in those countries as well, was integrating into the local community or the school group there something that, that you did there as well? Um, well, I went to a, a British international school in Norway, uh, but it was a mix. There was quite a lot of Norwegian students there, which was really, really fun. Uh, the only thing was there were Norwegian lessons on offer in the evenings. Um, I guess my one regret, it would have been quite interesting to go to those lessons and maybe even attend a Norwegian school, which some of my friends did later on um, down the line. I think that would have been a, a quite an interesting opportunity. But I mean, I understood why my parents kept me in that in that school. They had always intended to move back to England later on to do GCSEs and A-levels. So it made sense to, you know, stick your children in a in a school where it's predominantly English spoken. Mm. But I mean, I had, yeah, I did have Norwegian friends. I'd not, I'd say, not as much as when I lived in Indonesia. Yeah, and when you lived in Indonesia, sorry, did you say you were based in one of the cities, or you mentioned um, you mentioned seeing that monkey in one of the in one of the main suburban areas or urban areas? But were you also getting out into um, into places like the ones where you've since worked into the more remote areas? No, not really. Um, I mean, we were based in Jakarta, which was very different back then. I mean, don't get me wrong, it was still mega, mega busy. Mm. But actually, I've been to the district where I was brought up and it's completely changed. There were loads, so um, 
basically Jakarta split into different kampungs, which are essentially different villages. But obviously now it's kind of a big urban sprawl. But when we lived there, we were part of one particular kampung. And um, that was a really, really nice experience. So although it was quite busy, there was still a lot of a, a kind of a village feel there as well. So we lived, as I said, right in the centre. So you'd come out of our house um, and then we'd have just a whole area where there was all local houses. So it was really a, quite an interesting way of way of living. It was quite a unique opportunity. And 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 yeah. Yeah, it's a country, I suppose, where there's been so much development, even even within our lifetimes. And uh, one of the main, well, one of the big areas of development that there's been has been the um, the oil palm industry, which is one of the things that is having such an impact on the rainforests and on the primates and other wildlife out there, isn't it? Yes, definitely. It's absolutely horrific. I mean, I think we've both seen firsthand the effects of par- the palm oil in Borneo, in particular. And that's had absolutely devastating effects. I think I always remember when I took um, one of our one of our friends on a, for her thirtieth birthday. I paid to take her up on a on a small plane so we could see our field site in southern Kalimantan. Mm. And I always remember just being so shocked as we flew over, only a couple of kilometres away from the field site, and there was just rows and rows of palm oil trees. Absolutely horrific. So devastating. Yeah. So I want to I want to come back to that, but I, I wanted to ask um, about how you made the transition from just a childhood interest in wildlife and nature into into field work and into primatology into a into really a career in this. Um, and your undergraduate, correct me if I'm wrong, were focused on geography and biology, and then you went on yes. to do a master's in primatology. That's right. So originally. So it was when I was about seven, actually. So at that time, I had mo- I was living in Norway, and I re- I just remember um, my my granddad sadly passed away around that period of time. And like I said earlier, he was living in the Philippines, and he had actually rescued a macaque um, from the black market. And I always remember him telling me about this and telling me about monkeys and apes and I was just so fixated and I just thought it was so interesting and then later on I remember it was in my early teens I remember reading something about Diane Fossey and Jane Goodall and I realized wow this is this is a real job um, I'm really really keen to also essentially follow in their footsteps and study primates as well and it was from there, really. I was just inspired by these two strong women and then what are these stories I'd been told about the black market and about macaque behaviour. And I, I just thought, right, I, I knew I wanted to work in conservation. What, why, had your, why had your granddad decided to rescue that black macaque? So he had seen it in the, in the black market and he didn't know any better. He, he basically just rescued it and brought it home and it used to live essentially around the house and it just used to stroll outside into his garden it was it was free roaming i mean nowadays we say you know you don't buy something from the black market because you know hunters um pet trade workers are only going to go and get another species and, and put it back in the market so actually you know they normally say leave the animals there as awful as it is to see but he didn't know any better at the time and he thought he was he was doing a good thing 
I mean, he'd never had obviously any form of exotic pets. I mean, as far as I'm uh, as I know, he only ever had dogs as, as pets. Um, but he saw it and he couldn't resist. Um, he just felt so sorry for it that he just brought it home. Miss Lim, her name was. She was very cheeky. She actually hated women. And yeah, all I remember about her is that she used to pull the hairs on men's arms like over and over again. She just found it really therapeutic. She would just be pulling on your hairs. <laughs> so I wanted to ask as well about, um, you've, you've kind of just touched on it really, about who some of your inspirations were, whether they were people you read or saw on TV or met, and I think you've just kind of referred to Diane Fossey and Jane Goodall, who might be two of them. Yes, no. Um, I think with any primatologist, we all look at Jane and Diane Fossey and Brute Galaticus, and, you know, they were the three Leakey's angels, um, you know, developing the work of Richard Leakey, and... I mean, I remember this article I'd read about Jane and I just, there was a photo of her just sat in the middle of this rainforest, um, just sat amongst chimpanzees and I just thought, wow. And I thought, at first I thought, what an experience, what an amazing thing to do. And then when I read more and realised um, so many problems around the world that are affecting primates and other animals, I just, I've just felt really excited to help. Uh, I always wanted a a life purpose shall we say and I knew from a very young age I didn't want to work in an office um, I didn't I wanted to do something worthwhile I always said I wanted to run up to the gates of heaven at the end of my life and be like wow what an amazing life I've led and I actually did some good I didn't want to kind of stroll up there and be like what did I actually do so definitely Jane and I'd say later on, I mean, another big name, but David Attenborough, I think he, I just love the way he's managed to take elements of nature and he tells such beautiful stories that literally just captivates so many people and such a young audience, especially today when it's, I think it's more and more important that we engage with nature. So sadly, the big obvious names, there's no, uh, I'd say, unique person in there that I can say inspired me, but... But yes, I'd say Jane and David. No, I think um, you know. I think I think they're very worthwhile and uh, <laughs> good idols to choose. Really, if you're gonna if you're gonna pursue a career in conservation, I think those are absolutely the you know the front runners in terms of in terms of the work that they've done and the the trials that they put themselves through to get to where they are today. I mean, just I, I know less about Jane Goodall, but David Attenborough, for example, when he first started out, wildlife filmmaking of animals in the wild was was not even a thing and he kind of That's created it. created that market not just came to dominate it but he kind of invented it along with some other people who worked with him at the time so that's right they're, Fantastic. yeah they're absolutely the right kind of people to be drawing inspiration from so so that that then led you on to the focus in your master's yeah. on primatology yeah uh, eventually i mean i kind of meandered a very unusual way there i mean my parents always say i never really do anything conventionally but I always knew I wanted to study an aspect of primate conservation and originally I thought I'm going to focus more on habitat loss and you know the pressures um, impacting primates through habitat loss and so I thought okay I'll do a physical geography degree which fed in would feed in really nicely to that with regards to policy making and things and etc. Uh, it was only halfway down the line of doing that degree, I actually thought, no, this doesn't feel right. I, I decided, no, maybe I want to 
study the behavior of primates in relation to anthropogenic impacts. So that's when I started looking up master's degrees and I realized I'd need a, a good biology base to do a master's degree like that. So that's when I decided to do an open university degree. I had so many people say to me, you're making a massive mistake, what are you doing? Not that the, because I think the university is extremely, it's well respected, it has amazing tutors, it's very well run, but I think it was just so unconventional at the time mm. that people had the, um, the idea of it being for more mature students or housewives who were bored at home. And to be honest, I had no idea what to expect. But I thought, no, that's what I want to do because I wanted to study full time and work and earn money so that I could go take my degree with me, travel around the world and essentially get field experience at the same time just to confirm this was exactly the area of primatology I wanted to work in, i.e. looking at behavior. And that's basically what, what I did. So I'd work full time. I did wait, various waitressing jo jobs and things like that, decorating, anything. Um, and then I would be doing my degree full time and then I would just take it around the world with me. And I went so many unique places. I went to South Africa, um, Namibia at one point as well, um, Malaysia, Bahamas. It was absolutely fantastic. So you, so you got a real flavor whilst you were studying of the kind of work that you might be doing. So you're kind of taking it for a test drive, which I think is a really interesting approach. So many people kind of do it in, in a sequence where it's study, then go and get the experience. Exactly. I like the idea of a test drive, <laughs> yes. Maybe one trip that would have been the test drive, but I had such an excitement for it and such a flair for working with primates. I, it became almost um, an obsession, a bit of a travel bug problem. Um, so many of my friends always said, are you actually ever in the country? And <laughs> literally every penny I had, I just thought, no, no, let's just go, let's spend it on a flight. Let's, you know, spend it on something worthwhile. Let's go look at something. Let's go save something. So, yeah, I got so much out of it. And it was after getting all this different field experience as well, which uh, later on down the line was um, really important in my career anyway, because um, by the time I got my master's, I stood out because I had a distinction in primatology and I had already all this field experience. And the, collectively, that was what employers were after. So it actually really worked in my favor as well even if I was poor. <laughs> <laughs> and was it really from your from the first trip that you did that you were like, yes, I know this is what I want to do? Or was there a moment was there a moment when you when you realized, yes, this is definitely what, what I want to do that was maybe maybe after you'd done a few different trips? It was definitely my first trip and the story starts a little bit you have to go back a bit, but when I was waitressing um, actually at school while I was doing my A-level, so this was before I'd even gone to start this geography degree. Mm. Um, I, I, went, I was working this restaurant that was quite posh, and I always remember there was this customer who always came in, and, and all of us waitresses and waiters hated serving him because, you know, he was, he was a bit of an arrogant ass. And anyway, one day he beckoned me over, and he said to me, is this it? Is this what you're doing with your life? And I remember, I was so shocked by, by that statement. And I was, I said, well, no, I actually am doing my A-levels. And I remember he looked at me and then said, okay, well, 
um, what is your dream then? And he was kind of smiling, kind of smirking. Or, and I still don't know where he was going with this. And I said to him, no, my dream is to study orangutans in Borneo. And I remember he looked at me for ages and he laughed and he laughed and he laughed. He thought it was the most ridiculous dream he'd ever heard. And I had tears like building up in my eyes. They were stinging and I just thought, right, walk away, walk away. And I thought to myself afterwards, no, no, I'm going to prove him wrong. And so in 2006, I had my first proper trip on my own. And it was to Borneo, it was to Malaysian Borneo, actually. Mm-hmm. And I was working at one of the rescue centers. And I instantly knew the moment I arrived before I'd even seen the primates, just being in the rainforest and hearing various vocalizations and hearing bird calls, I just instantly knew. I was like, no, I meant I meant to be a field worker. I know that. And then when I saw them for the first time, I was just blown away. And I just, I was just so fascinated. And again, I just thought there'll be no turning back now. This is 100% what I want to do. I'm so dedicated to this. And yeah, I haven't looked back. Been doing this for more than 10 years now. So, and still love it just as much <laughs> as day one. And then you, uh, you know, to really stick it to that guy who, uh, who sounds <laughs> like a bit of an idiot, you then <laughs> fulfilled your dream and did end up going and working in Borneo on orangutans. Exactly. So, ha ha to him. <laughs> I probably skipped a couple of steps. Sorry, in between, in between uh, your your master's degree and going out to Borneo, but um, yeah. Uh, no, that was kind of that was before the masters. Oh, okay. That was, um, that was uh, whilst I was just about. I was just about to start the Open University degree. Right. So I just started earning money at that point, and so yeah, it was about that time. No, I did my masters couple of years down the line because it took me quite a while to do the open university degree because the first year I only did I was like two modules or something just to get a flair for it because I wasn't sure if it because basically it's self-taught essentially you're given the equivalent of your lecture notes and then you've got to have a lot of self-motivation and enthusiasm to study if you don't put that time in then you are going to fail your degree essentially there's no one there making you go to lectures or you know, you do have um, assigned times for when you, you hand in your assignments, but um, often because they know that people are very busy, they're quite um, sort of slack with, with the, the assignment times as well. So, yeah, you've got to be very, very dedicated. So I, it took me about four and a half years to complete it. Right. And then after that, I signed up for my master's. And, yeah, I was just really nervous at the beginning because I thought... How is the Open University going to look? Are they going to regard it as, you know, a really unusual path, but in a negative way? Mm. And I always remember on day one, um, I spoke to one of my course tutors, and he's now he's now a very a very good friend. And he basically said to me, "No, no, we are so impressed with your undergraduate degrees." And he said, I think to do an open university degree would take a lot of hard work and enthusiasm. And so he was like, you've earned, you've earned your place here. And I always remember that gave me like the confidence boost that I really needed. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And then, um, so at what point did you then end up working for what is now called the Borneo Nature Foundation? So after I finished my master's, I instantly just couldn't wait to 
start one, a unique job and get back out into the field. Um, for my master's research, I actually worked in Madagascar. So I started looking there um, because I was working with ring-tailed lemurs and looking at the impact of tourism on ring-tailed lemur behavior in relation to aggression and anxiety. And so I was quite keen to go back out there and work for one of the Malagasy organizations. But sadly, there were no jobs going. So then I found a job in Panama. And I, one of my master's friends had been working there. And so I applied. It was assistant manager position and a research coordinator kind of joint position. So I went out there. However, I knew in my second week I hated it. Nothing to do with the work or the primates or my wonderful interns who I had the pleasure of managing. It was to do with the people running the organization. I just felt their hearts went in the right place. We had different opinions to do with morals. And, you know, I think if you have differences, opinions in morals, then you've got a big problem there. Yeah. So I left and I worked for the Institute of Zoology in London and was doing some really cool work um, involving red listing and looking at the living planet index. So looking at population trends of various species over time. And whilst I was there, I saw a job advertisement with the Orangutan Tropical Peatland Project, now Borneo Nature Foundation. And I saw it and it was for a, a senior primate scientist role and they were looking for someone with field experience, someone who had experience of living in Indonesia, someone with a primatology-based degree, and I just thought, yes. And so, cut a long story short, after a couple of rounds of interviews, they eventually employed me, and I was just so excited. <laughs> um, <clears throat> just, just thinking, just reflecting on some of the things that you've said, whether it's quitting that organisation after after just a few weeks because you had uh, differences of morals or differences of opinion with the people running it or whether it's doing the open university degree despite people around you kind of cautioning you against it I feel like you've taken some decisions which could be described as brave or courageous do you feel do you feel like bravery or courage have played an important role in your career to date or would you not really see it in those terms do you know what, Matt? I've never looked at it in those terms. Um, I mean, I had a couple of friends who said to me, wow, um, that's a really brave decision, especially when I started my Open University degree. With regards to leaving the organization, I don't think it was a question of bravery. It was a question of me being brought up in a certain way. Um, I think my parents did an absolutely wonderful job. And I just couldn't work for that organization. I mean, I did stay for a couple of months, I add. Although I knew I wanted to leave after week two, I knew I had an obligation as well to fulfill part of the job, and I did stay. Um, but I mainly stayed for my interns who I was managing because I cared for them so much, and I cared that they got what they, they paid for. And that mattered a lot to me, again, going back to morals. And for me, it was just... It was a decision I had to make. It wasn't a question of bravery. I just thought I'm not going to be bullied here and I'm not going to work for an organization where I just don't believe in it. It's a waste of my time. It's a waste of my energy. And, you know, I, I, did, I was almost embarrassed that it's on my CV. And I just thought, leave. But it wasn't a question of bravery, to be honest. I've never looked at it in those terms, but thank you. <laughs> 
Um, and you say that one of the reasons you stayed was for the interns you were managing, and then I, I know obviously because we were out in Indonesia at the same time, part of your role out there was also managing people as well. Where did you, was that during your master's degree when you were doing some of your trips that you began to build up experience of working with teams and even managing other people? Where, where did that experience come from? Where did you gain those skills? Another really good question. Um, I. I had my first kind of management position as a team leader when I worked in Namibia. I worked for an organization and I went out there to study baboons, but in the end I ended up kind of working a bit with everything. It was a massive rehabilitation center. Um, and I was assigned uh, a team leader role because the, the kind of the leader of the organization, he saw traits in people that he really liked and he always remembered that we'd basically been digging a trench and I, I suffer from um, low blood pressure and basically if I don't eat or if I don't drink enough water or if I suddenly have a migraine my blood pressure drops and so does my heart rate my heart rate doesn't compensate for the drop in blood pressure and I always remember so we're digging this trench and I suddenly was like oh my goodness I'm gonna faint and he dragged me away I started fainting he pulled me to the side and then he gave me a chocolate bar and he said, right, you sit out for the rest of the day. He was really concerned. And I said, no, no, I'll be fine. And within five minutes, I was back on my feet. I had picked up my shovel and I carried on digging a trench. And he came over and he was just like, I'm just so impressed. He said, you had an opportunity to sit out for the day and you haven't. And he said to me, I'm going to make you a team leader. So it wasn't necessarily a trait to do with people. Um, but I mean, I've always enjoyed working with people. I I really enjoy helping people and I pride myself on being a good listener and I think these are key traits if you're going into a management role and I do think a lot of scientists who normally end up running these organizations are not always the best managers mm. and I always say to myself I don't really see myself as a natural scientist I never have done I don't don't get me wrong, I think I'm good at what I do and I think I've got elements of, you know, a scientific brain, shall we say. But essentially, I wouldn't say I'm a true scientist. I don't think like a true scientist. And I think that actually works in my favour sometimes with regards to working with people. So, I mean, after that stint in Namibia, that definitely helped get the job, BNF. And to be honest, my management style and experience is just common sense and listening to people. Mm, that's really interesting. Um, could you say a little bit more now about what the um, what the focus of the research that you helped to coordinate in Indonesia was for the Borneo Nature Foundation? Yes, so I was really lucky. I got to work on a three species. So I was basically in charge of managing these three different research projects. They were all um, essentially long-term field projects there was one on the southern Bornean orangutan, we had southern Bornean gibbons, and then we had red leaf monkeys. And the amazing thing about BNF is that they've got so much going on and they collect so much data and it's absolutely incredible. So for example, with the orangutans, a lot of the work they've been doing since you know the late 1990s is population monitoring in the area, which has been so important when looking at conservation action plans. So when there was one, once upon a time in the early 1990s, there was a lot of logging going on, going on and later on a lot of illegal logging as well. And 
obviously there's this cycle as well that we often hear about in Indonesia um, of forest fires as well that happen each year. And so this this type of work is so important to look at those those trends over time and see how how adaptable um, the southern Bornean orangutans are are. We were also looking at mother infant development, um, which essentially feeds into their survivability. And we were looking at vocalizations. So not many people know, but orangutans make a whole array of different vo vocalizations. So kiss squeaks, if you're too close, mm -hmm. it's like proximity warning. Yeah, Matt, you know it well. <laughs> <laughs> and males make these amazing long calls as well to advertise to other females to basically um, to uh, provide them with mating opportunities. So we were doing things like that. So we were recording a whole array of data. And we were doing similar things with the other two projects as well, to, with the gibbons and the red leaf monkeys. So to do with vocalizations, mother infant development, um, population estimates, um, just really, really important work, like I said, that feeds into these action plans for the future. And this is really something that you were referring to earlier, which is where you thought you might focus more on the on the kind of habitat scale side of things, but actually felt that that wasn't quite right and have, fo have focused since then a lot more on the, I might be getting the term wrong here, but on the behavioral ecology side of yeah, things like yeah perfect terminology there yes exactly because i think they're very they they almost go hand in hand if you basically want to look at what a particular species needs to survive it okay fair enough you can look on, at the bigger picture and look at habitat quality and how that's changed over time but unless you're also looking at the adaptability of a species and how maybe they're declining or increasing in numbers and also how, for example, they behave within their groups, um, you know, is there um, aggression, stress, um, where are they ranging, where do they go, what are they feeding on, unless you're actually looking at their behavior and all of these different aspects, I think you can't come up with a, um, you know, a sustainable, really good, efficient conservation management plan for the future. Could you describe a little bit for people what the kind of what the environment is like in in that rainforest? What it's like <laughs> to be there? So it was peat swamp forest, and Indonesia has some of the most amazing peat swamp forests in the whole world. So peat swamp is essentially um, mass a mass store of carbon. So if you imagine all these leaves falling off the trees, and then they slowly um, you know, land on the ground, but the ground is already very waterlogged. So what happens is over time, you know, these leaves are getting compressed and, you know, with this heat and compression, eventually what happens is this kind of black sludgy peat um, forms. And we're talking over a very long period of time here, but this black sludgy sludge forms. And then essentially in the wet season, and Matt and I both know this well, um, you can be walking through the peat swamp and the water can come right up to your waist and the, you know, and the black sludge is way above your, your ankles and it's really tough to walk in and you've got to really learn how to be quite nimble on your feet. And I always remember trying to race the Indonesian staff. So if we'd been doing an orangutan nest survey on our way back, there was always me and one particular Indonesian staff member that we would have this amazing race. And he always used to say to me, Kaz, you won't keep up. And I was like, okay, one day I will. 
<laughs> and I always remember one of my last a couple of weeks being there, I, I said I wanted a rematch. And we ran through that peat swamp forest so fast. It was amazing. We were like hopping on all the roots and it was just incredible. And all the little tree stumps and like we missed all the huge holes. And yeah, I beat him. So ha. <laughs> Never one to be defeated. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was hard work, but a beautiful forest to work in. Yeah, yeah, I completely Unique. agree. Yeah. Um, are there any particularly special wildlife encounter memories that you have from that, from the time you were working there? Oh my goodness, so many. I mean, I there must, yeah. Uh, 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 so uh, many. Same for me, there are, there are so many. It would be hard to choose, but is there, are there any that stand out? Um, I think for me, I remember we were, it was really early in the morning. It was about three in the morning. And me and the now orangutan coordinator, um, who is Indonesian, him and I were going off to follow my favorite male orangutan, Vulcan. And we were on our way and we had to leave really early because it was the wet season. It was going to take us probably about an hour and a half to get to the nest um, because it was two, two kilometers away from camp and some, which doesn't sound that far. But anyone who's worked in peat swamp forest will know that um, it can take a really long time. That is far. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we were on our way there and we were both half asleep still. And we were almost at the nest. And um, the Indonesian staff member who was walking in front of me, he walked past this tree, which was quite dark and very big. And then I kind of walked next to the tree and suddenly I heard this rawr. And I whoa! And I <laughs> jumped back just as a sun bear ran out. And then basically, because we were all scared, I practically tripped over it. <laughs> and I was screaming. Then a G started screaming, the Indonesian staff member. And then the sun bear was screaming. We were all just screaming. <laughs> and then the poor bear was so petrified, it like sprinted off into the forest. Oh, but it was so funny. We laughed so much afterwards. And actually, in hindsight, I said that could have been so dangerous if, for example, it had been a female with a cub. You know, it basically, like, brushed past my legs. So that's why I tripped over it. Mm. But what an encounter. And some bears are so rare to see in that forest. So I was just so excited to have seen one, let alone trip over one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I saw one once during my entire year they're walking away from me for about four seconds and that was it they're they're very no, rare no. to come across i feel i feel like the environment there is um well a little bit like woodlands or forests in the uk as well it can feel at first glance if you just walk into it quite quiet it yes. takes quite a long time of you have to spend quite a long time either sitting and listening or walking through it for stuff to begin appearing um even even orangutans or gibbons can be less quiet. Uh, sorry, quieter than you would expect, actually. Definitely, and I remember when when we've taken out new volunteers or interns, students, and they're they're following in the forest, and we would be following gibbons, for example, and they would look up into the forest, and the gibbons would be moving, and I'd be pointing them out, being like, "Oh, look! Now she's brachiating. She's swinging through the trees. Oh, now she's feeding on something." And I always remember that whoever I was with and if they were new they were like but I can't see it where are you looking <laughs> so I know what you mean it can they can be so quiet sometimes 
And you can even walk past, it's happened a few times to me, I've walked past a massive flange male orangutan and I've just not seen it because they're so quiet and just so well camouflaged. Mm. It's amazing. Yeah. And um, getting up, going out early when you nearly tripped over that sun bear um, <laughs> early in the morning, it, that represents sort of a typical day that you would have spent there? That's a typical day. Maybe, so, yes, maybe minus you... the sun bear, but in terms of the routine. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely routine. You wake up early, not just necessarily in that particular part of the world, but if you're ever following wild primates, you have to wake up early. That can be as early as three in the morning. Um, obviously, it's different if you're studying a nocturnal species, um, but the ones I normally study are diurnal, so they're active during the day. And so you get up at three. I always try and have a strong cup of coffee or something just to give me that little buzz and, you know, a couple of spoonfuls of rice or you know, try and just eat something. And then, yeah, then you grab your backpack and you would go off into the forest, maybe about four in the morning, depending on what species you're studying. And then you would go, either go to the nest. So if it was an orangutan, you'd make your way to the nest where you'd seen them last. If it was a gibbon, you'd wait for them to start singing. Gibbons do these beautiful territorial songs every morning. And these songs are also used to reinforce social bonds and advertise to potential mates. So you hope that the gibbons will start singing and then you can kind of identify which group you're going to follow that day. And then you can approach slowly after they're finished singing. So then you would follow your primate species all day long until eventually they make their nest or they go to their sleeping tree for the night and then you can go home. But if you're following red leaf monkeys, I think, Matt, I think it was you and I who had that epic. I was just about to say, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think we got back at seven. Something like that. I mean, we bait, so to, to put it in context, they are harder to keep track of for the whole day because they, they move so quickly. But I think you and I managed for an entire day from, I don't know, four or five in the morning until five or six in the evening to stay with this group of red leaf monkeys for the whole day unless I'm unless I'm misremembering no we did it I was very proud of us <laughs> I was but also very that proud was in, of us that was my first um few months of being there wasn't it I think it might have been yeah yeah that that was an amazing day that was that a really good day just really fun <laughs> <laughs> and we did it even if we got back at seven at night we did it <laughs> yeah and tiring we must have walked quite a long way that day we did. We walked. I remember. I looked at it. It was. Um, we'd walked easily about seven k, eight k. Yeah, which, as we said earlier, in that environment, is it's a lot more than it might sound. Yes, we'd properly meandered round as well. They'd been doing lots of circles around us. I, I remember that decoy methods <laughs> to get rid of us. Um. So it was. It was during your time there, whilst you'd always dreamed of going out and working on orangutans, that you also sort of fell in love with gibbons, right? Oh yes. That was my first sighting of a gibbon. I mean, obviously, I'd worked with the orangutans in 2006. And so, I had not, I'd, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'd done my research before I'd gone out and I'd, I'd you know, looked up gibbons and, uh, and red leaf monkeys as well. I'd also never worked with them before. And, but I had no idea really what to expect. And I remember my first morning out and I heard the haunting song of the gibbon and I was just blown away. And I, I remember just seeing my first one. We were following a group called Karate. And I just remember seeing um, Bruce Lee. And he had started that morning singing his coda, like all male gibbons do. Normally, they'll sing a coda. The female will then join in with her great call and they'll duet. 
and I saw Bruce Lee and I was just so mesmerized and I just thought oh, I really just can't wait to study these in more detail and but I made sure while I was there I, I it was really important for me to not be biased so although I found the Gibbons much more interesting at the time um, I was really enjoying the other two projects as well and I really for example really wanted to develop the red leaf monkey project um, which I did do um, but it was hard near the end of my two years of being there because I was just so fascinated with the Gibbons but I did make sure I was, I was kind of I gave my time evenly mm. um, but you have since gone on to you reminded me of this earlier write a book called The Little Gibbon Who Lost His Song that's correct. Based, yes. uh, based in partly, I suppose, on your love of Gibbons. Could you say a little bit more about the book? Yes. Yeah, so actually, the book was a wonderful team effort with BNF. So it was one day when we were in the forest, and um, I was just following Wild Gibbons, and we had really, really bad forest fires in 2015. So these fires can be started um, by environmental means, so natural causes, but most of the time they, it is anthropogenic. It can be anything from like uh, small scale farmers to big oil palm plantations, you know, basically slash and burn kind of farming techniques. Uh, so at the time, though, it was one of the worst um, forest fire seasons that part of the world had seen since 1997. So I can't even explain how horrific the air was. Uh, you could basically not even see five meters in front of you. It was like a yellow haze. Yeah, it made international and headlines all it did. around the world, didn't it? Yeah, it was it was horrific to live there. And I mean, children were dying in Sumatra just to kind of illustrate how how actually bad it was. Mm. And I remember whilst we were there and we were in the forest and we had to call the follow off following the Gibbons off because it was just the conditions were just too bad. And based on BNF research, um, we know already that gibbons do not sing in smoky conditions. And like I said, this behavior is so important for their social development and to reinforce those social bonds, like I said earlier. So I suddenly had this idea and I'd scribbled down some ideas on the bottom of a, a data sheet um, for a story. And when I got back to camp, I approached the communications manager at the time and I said, what do you think about writing a book? Let's maybe a book for local children to raise some awareness. And luckily she loved it. She was always open to new, fresh ideas and she was super keen. And so, yeah, we, I, I wrote the story within two hours because it was just it just kind of came off my out of my head. And I was like, great. And I gave it to her and I said, right, let's see what we can do with this. And the story, yeah, just developed from there. So a couple of people reviewed it, um, including all the Indonesian staff. That was the most important thing. And one of the research assistants, she did all the amazing illustrations. She's so talented. And the communications manager did all the book editing. And then we printed it. And then we were like, great. And we donated it to uh, local schools and local youth groups to help raise awareness. And then now... <clears throat> sorry now you can even sell it or you even sell it online um and then all proceeds go back into conservation and back into education as well which is fantastic so whilst part of the goal was to to raise funds part of it was also to raise more awareness among the local community about the the wildlife that lives on their doorsteps 100 percent, because i feel like if you want to 
have really positive, sustainable environmental change in an area, I think you need to work very closely with local people. And I think often that needs to start from a young age. Um, so they're not so set in their ways. And they're, then I'd say younger people are normally more open to suggestions and ideas. So that was kind of the idea of the book. And I mean, obviously, it deals with an issue that forest fires is, is quite a hard issue for some um, students to read. Um, but we try to make the story, I mean, very lighthearted. And it's basically about this little gibbon who loses his family in the smoke. And he meets all these various characters from the Peat Swamp Forest who help him and try and find his parents. They all do their different vocalizations, but none of them can sing like gibbons. So they can't really help. And then eventually... Um, a local team um, of villagers basically spend all night putting out the forest fire and eventually the air clears and little Gibbon finds his, his family, essentially. Some spoilers there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but still worth buying the book for the, for the story and for the beautiful illustrations as well. Oh, oh, definitely. It's such a beautiful little book. And it's bilingual as well, which is quite fun. So the, the Indonesian children have obviously been trying to learn some English. But I also think it's quite nice for English children, English-speaking children, to um, see what another a language looks like as well from quite a young age. I know in my experience I was grown up I grew up with um look you know reading uh, French books German books and seeing Indonesian written down as well and Norwegian and that was super fascinating so I think it's it's uh, it's a kind of a learning experience mm. so I want to move on to the new research project that you're embarking on um, with a team of people which is also focused on well which is now focused primarily on gibbons but a different species of gibbon right i was wondering if you could just say a little bit about that maybe by beginning by telling us about the species and where it is and why it's of interest to you yes definitely super excited to talk about my research so i left bnf and i've started now a phd and yeah so i'm studying i mean essentially i'm looking at um the drivers and patterns of um, population decline with regards to gibbons in Eastern and Southeast Asian, East Asia. And so I'm looking at a couple of species actually, but the one I'm predominantly focusing on is the very newly discovered Skywalker Hulock gibbon, which was found, well, uh, basically it was publicized to the world earlier this year, 2017. Uh, but we've actually known about this population of gibbons since as early as 2008, but basically the researchers had no idea it was a new species. So the Skywalker gibbon is found in a very isolated area um, in China called Gaolingangshang. And we believe, due to our, um, based on our population density estimates, we believe there are about 200 individuals within that given area. Um, but the population is extremely close to the uh, Miami's border, so going over into Burma, Myanmar. Yeah. And so we're not exactly sure whether the population, whether the species is also found over there. So that is going to be part of my research, is trying to establish exactly how many there are. Um, so I'll be doing population surveys in, in Myanmar as well. And we also want to look at the amount of inbreeding and dispersal patterns of gibbons. 
um, that's also going on within the, the given population of the, uh, within China. So that's really important because it will basically tell us um, how big the genetic pool is, for example, and how far they're exactly are they dispersing to find a new mate. And more importantly, we'd also be we'll, and my plan is also to work with local people. I will be essentially interviewing them to understand their values and their needs so that we can come up with a conservation action plan that will benefit them as well. I think that's very important because often these local communities are found within Gibbon habitat. So it's important to work very closely with them so that their needs are being met as well. And then ultimately you end up with a more sustainable plan. Right. I, we, were, we were discussing this briefly earlier, but um, Alan Rabinowitz, one of the other guests on this podcast, has written an entire book uh, called Life in the Valley of Death about his work to uh, work with the Myanmar government to set up huge uh, tiger reserves in the country. And one of the main tasks which he faced was understanding and working with the local communities and local companies as well to to figure out a way in which setting up those reserves could benefit the people and the communities at the same time as benefiting wildlife so that's absolutely that's yeah, as you've already said it's absolutely core to kind of any conservation work of this kind i was wondering if you could just explain briefly for people um how you can how uh, gibbons that you know are there already can turn into a new species and i suppose this also happened earlier this year with the third species of orangutan yeah. that was discovered but it wasn't orangutans that we didn't necessarily know were already there um so whether you could talk a little bit about how that happens where you where you suddenly realize that gibbons that you've been seeing all along are actually a different species yes of course so one of my supervisors um, he is essentially the leading expert in, I'd say, Chinese gibbons. And he noticed that there were morphological differences. So he noticed that there were slightly different coloration with the with um, that particular population of gibbons in Gaolagangshang compared to the eastern hulok species, which he thought actually the Skywalker hulok belonged to. Um, and he also thought, okay, well, let's, based on the fact that they're found in this isolated area, you know, essentially isolation, for example, from a physical barrier, such as a river or a mountain range, um, can often lead to um, allopatric speciation. Then this basically means that because of this physical barrier, basically you, you started off with the same species, but because they're separated, eventually over long evolutionary periods of time, a new species is formed. So, so, so speciation meaning separation of species and allopatric meaning? Allopatric means um, separation of species um, due to a physical barrier. Right. Speciation is basically the formation of new spe a new species. Right. Sorry to cut you off. No, not at all. So, yeah, so he had this idea anyway. So then they started collecting fecal samples and they basically did um, DNA sequencing and they found out, yes, it was a completely different species. It was genetically um, different, more different than the Eastern Hulock species that was found nearby. And then they also looked at loads of different specimens, so specimens that were found in museums. Um, we, in fact, we have a Skywalker Hulock Gibbon specimen in the Natural History Museum in London, which I got to see the other day, which was amazing. <laughs> 
And so they looked at the coloration of the wild ones, but also the specimens and also dentition of skull specimens. And they basically found that dentition and obviously this coloration was completely different. So this gave rise to this must be a new species because it's isolated and it has all these basically these factors that differentiate it from the Hulot gibbon. So basically, in answer to your question, to say you've got a new species, you have to throw everything at it. You can't just go in and say, OK, well, it looks different. Because actually, in, when you look at the vast array of species we have today, that often doesn't mean anything. For example, look at the domestic dog. You get so many different variations of dogs, but they're all the same species according to our, our criteria. So you need to throw more at it. You've got to throw physical differences. You've got to look at DNA. Potentially, you look at vocalizations and you look at exactly where you find them. And if you can throw all these things together, um, then often that will, you know, strengthen your case to say, yes, it's a new species. And this, you have to do all this before you can then go on to answer some of the questions that you're going to be tackling, which is which uh, such as, uh, you know, what is the population size? What are the conservation implications of that? And how much do we need to be doing to protect and conserve this species? Exactly. Exactly. So at the moment, we can't so um, assess the species properly, the Skywalker Hulock species properly. So by this, I mean the International Union Conservation for Nature. Every, every year, they bring out the species red list. So you can find this online. It's really easy to Google. IUCN red list. And on that, it's a species red list that basically lists species in, in relation to their extinction risk. So they look at various different things, for example, how many there are, where exactly they're found, what are the human pressures, um, what is causing potential population declines, that type of thing. And so we can't really assess a Skywalker Hulot Gibbon yet properly um, without knowing all the information. So that's where I'll come in. We want to know exactly what are the human pressures, um, how big is the actual population, what are we dealing with? And um, when we know all this information, then we can come up with this kind of red list assessment um, and make it more official. And also then it basically directs our research efforts and conservation efforts ultimately. Um, so presumably if these are gibbons that we've been at least observing to date, we do know something about their behavioural ecology. So for example, like the Bornean gibbons that you worked with, that they live in family groups in the same way or? That's right. So, I mean, we know some information about them. Um, although, I mean, th they've been basically been studied since 2008. They were studying more um, adjacent populations of the uh, Eastern Hulock. So there is still so much more work and scope we can do with the Skywalker Hulock species. But yes, all the species I'm studying, all gibbons, predominantly live in these small family groups. But what is interesting, what we're seeing with Chinese gibbons especially, um, is that they often live in larger groups than you would expect. So they often have, for, for originally, originally basically they said gibbons were thought to be monogamous. So you've got an adult male, adult female, they mate for life and they have offspring and they don't look for different partners. But what we're seeing in other species of gibbons, especially these ones in China that I mentioned, uh, we notice that they have different types of social systems. So, for example, many of them are polygonous. So when you've got, 
for example, more more females and, and you've got one, uh, essentially one male and he mates with the other females. And so we're seeing larger groups. So one of the questions we're asking ourselves now is why do we see larger groups? Is that because there's less space? So therefore, you know, the, um, the juvenile individuals are not dispersing anymore. Um, are they staying within basically those close-knit family groups because there's nowhere else to go? There's not enough mates. Uh, and then who are they exactly mating with them? Because often you'll see that these um, these females, for example, that have remained within the groups end up having offspring. So where who is the father of, of their child, essentially? So there's loads of unanswered questions. So that's why it's really important to do all this behavioral ecology work and also collect those important fecal samples to look at that um, amount of inbreeding and those dispersal patterns. Right, so those fecal samples can tell you, can actually reveal quite a lot of information then. Exactly. Paternity, very important one. Mm, okay. Um, I want to ask as well whether kind of going into this research and into the, into the fieldwork side of it in particular, whether there's anything that you learned from your your work in Borneo or perhaps from elsewhere particularly things that went wrong maybe that you're you're taking into this project as kind of useful lessons learned yes another very good question um I think well I'm taking my all my experience I've gotten from all, all over the 10 years when I when I've worked in this field um from Borneo specifically obviously my knowledge on Gibbons would not be as refined if I had not worked in Borneo. So I already have quite a, a large amount of knowledge. With regards to things that went wrong, um, I would say it's important to do a pilot study, which is what I'm focusing on at the moment. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important as well to often researchers will go to a field site and then they'll stay there for, you know, for example, up to a year and just collect, 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 collect all this data and they don't really review it or analyze it necessarily at the time. Then they come back and then they look at it. Um, I think what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to basically do short fieldwork stints up to six months. So still a long period of time, still collecting really good, adequate data. But I think it's important to come back and actually see what data you've gotten. Because I think often you're you you forget your question that you're actually looking at and you end up kind of meandering away from it and so I think that's a really important lesson that I've learned over the 10 years is just to make sure you're always focused and not going off on a tangent mm. and you've um you've funded this PhD in in quite an uh quite an unconventional and innovative way I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that Yes. So, well, when I started the PhD or started coming up with the idea for it, and um, it was while I was still in Borneo and I basically applied and wasn't lucky enough to get through a, essentially a training program. And I mean, they're very competitive and also, um, well, the feedback I got was I'm pretty focused on Gibbons and my particular project. And at the time that was seen as it's, it was not seen as an asset. It was seen as more of a hindrance that I couldn't almost, you know, look at other things. I needed to be a bit more broad. So but no, I, my heart was so set on studying, studying Gibbons. And I really wanted to study 
um, gibbons found in China or transboundary populations that fall over into China and another country. So I know I carried on. And so after two years of trying to find funding, I applied to loads of different grants and due to various political problems with working in China currently, etc. Um, I just couldn't find the funding. So I just it reached a point where I thought I can't wait any longer. I'm just I'm so keen and I have all this experience and I've got time. And I just said, right, I'm going to just start. And the way I funded it, um, someone suggested I look at crowdfunding. And I was petrified by this. I am not amazing with computers and I'm not big on social media. And I knew that crowdfunding would be having a really strong social media presence and having like this platform that you're constantly engaging with people and you're trying to raise a big pocket of money. Um, so I just went for it. And I basically found this amazing animator and he was willing to work for free. And he took even holiday time off to work on my campaign. And he made me this amazing Star Wars themed video for my Skywalker Hulot Gibbon project. Because obviously the connection, Luke Skywalker and Star Wars, it fed in really nicely. And he did such a brilliant job and he made my campaign look so professional. And within a month, we'd already hit my target of 10 grand. And I think now we're on something just shy of 15,000 pounds. So it's done such an amazing job. I'm wow. just so overwhelmed yeah, with, with how people have reacted and just the campaign itself. It's been really hard work, harder than people imagine because it, you want to make it look professional and you're constantly trying to plug it and you're constantly having to annoy people with sending out these social posts and the preparation that goes into the social posts. Everything was literally organized in a spreadsheet when I was going to send out things when and even personally replying to every single one of my um, donors. It, it just took a long time, but it was so worth it. I'm so appreciative. And um, is there kind of a built-in commitment from you as well to, you know, once once you've hit the hit the target or the campaign is closed presumably that's not the end and there, there might be a built-in commitment to keep people up to date with the results of the research as it goes on 100 percent. so one of the things i quickly realized is i wanted to offer something to my backers because you know most people haven't heard of gibbons and okay you might look at a picture and think oh they're cute and cuddly maybe i'll support that but i wanted it to be more about raising awareness i thought even if i don't raise all the funds at least through this i want to raise awareness so what i offer my backers is Regardless of what they've contributed, they will be invited to a seminar or a webinar if they can't make it at the end of my research. And I plan to basically have a big party afterwards and it will give me an opportunity to talk about my research and how exactly they contributed. And any backer as well will also is going to basically be um, invited to look at my field vlog and I'm going to be making regular newsletter updates from the field as well just so people can see all the highs and lows and the hardships that come with doing field research so I mean often people ask me and say what exactly do you do and I thought this was a really nice way of sharing the journey with my backers so that they felt really involved because I in my head now I feel I feel like these backers are also part very much part of my project because without them I definitely wouldn't be able to do this 
So I feel like I'm taking all these people on the, on my research journey with me. And it's actually really exciting. And actually, it's given myself, I mean, I was excited beforehand, but I'm even more excited now, if that's possible, just because I have almost something to prove to these backers. And I just want to make everyone proud and be like, I'm so happy I supported her cause and look what we've achieved at the end. Were you surprised that you got to your target so quickly for a species of gibbon that people have probably not heard of before in most cases? I was so surprised. As I said, I had no idea what to expect. I mean, I, I've raised money before, for example, you know, cutting 18 inches of my hair off and donating it to a, a children's charity for with those with cancer and things like that. Um, and even that, even that, you know, it took me a while to work, raise 800 pounds. I think it took me a month to raise 800 pounds, let alone, you know, almost 15,000. So I was surprised. I think I think most of the people I knew, it was about 90% of the people were friends or people who knew of me. And I think the feedback I was getting was, you've wanted to do this forever. You've supported primates for 10 years. Um, 100% we're going to back you because you're so dedicated. And other people said, we know you, you know, we know you've got such good morals. We know exactly where this money is going to go. And we know you're going to tell us where every penny is going. So it was just really rewarding. So the other 10% really surprised me. And the feedback I got from them, I had some really big donations from people I'd never even met. And I think that for me, I found so warming. And their feedback as well was so lovely. They were one one uh, woman who donated, who's basically quite big in the primate world. She said to me it was the best campaign she's ever seen. And she's basically involved in communications for a big primate network so I was really amazed with that and yeah it's just overwhelmed I just can't thank everyone enough and I'm just I just yeah I can't believe we did it so quickly it's mind-blowing yeah having having watched it I think it has been an incredible campaign have you found um any particular platforms more or less effective during during the campaign or have you not really had time yet to go back and analyze and evaluate what's been successful and what what hasn't worked no i've definitely that was part of that's why i've been so busy as 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 the campaign was progressing i was i've been basically looking at all the stats for every post and i think that's really important so i think the ones that were really successful were either the personal ones about me personal ones about my team um or when i showed like a cute picture of a gibbon (laughs) <laughs> and as, uh, although I don't condone that, and I don't think that's the way we, sh- you know, we shouldn't be, you know, trying to get money that way. Uh, but actually, you know, cute does sell. It's it's a, the world we live in, and it does raise awareness. So many people clicked on a cute picture of a baby given face um, because they thought it was cute. Was the feedback I got, and then when they realised, oh wow, gibbons, you know, nineteen of the twenty species are endangered or critically endangered, really shocked them that they they were so upset by it that they ended up donating. So it was very interesting, actually. Uh, with regard to platform, though, I think I was most successful using Facebook. Twitter, not so successful. I tried my hardest to um, tweet at Mark Hamill and a couple of friends tried to help me as well, even just for him to share some of the posts. And I even tried tweeting some of the big Star Wars groups um, again, it's not really their type of thing. So, you know, it's fine. They don't really 
um, support personal campaigns. Mm. But, but I think anyone who's going to do this, I think do your research on the actual platform that you're launching from. So, for example, I used GoFundMe. Um, it wasn't 100% perfect, but it suited my needs at the time. Uh, there are more science-based ones, but they take such a large cut of the donations. So, for example, GoFundMe take 5%. But GoFundMe gave me a thousand pounds themselves because they liked my campaign so much, and they said this will basically offset most of your the cut that we're going to take from you. So that was that was really flattering as well, wow. really supportive. That's pretty amazing. Um, before we move on from this topic, is there anything more you wanted to say about the Skywalker Hulock Gibbon? No, I think I. Uh, We've covered everything beautifully, apart from that it's so awesome and badass. <laughs> we haven't explicitly said that, so yeah, it's important to get that out there. Um, <laughs> I wanted to return to something that you said almost at the start of the conversation, which is that you're currently working on two books, which I'd be yes. interested in hearing a bit more about, if you're able to tell us. Yeah, definitely. So the first one is another children's book that I'm doing. I'm writing it for the Jane Goodall Institute. So Jane, Jane Goodall's going to write the foreword for it, and I have a, an amazing illustrator. Um, she's quite big in the primate world, um, and she does these beautiful watercolor style paintings. Uh, and then I've got a co-author who is based at Wellington Zoo, and she's one of the senior primate keepers there, and I worked with her in South Africa originally. So the book is very similar to the style of the BNF one. It's about a chimpanzee this time, a particular chim chimpanzee that we both worked with in South Africa, and it's related to pet trade. So it's quite a hard topic, again, to write about, more so than the forest fire topic. Because with regards to pet trade, in with regards to chimpanzee specifically, mm -hmm. For every infant chimpanzee that's taken from the forest, normally about 10 adults have to be shot. So that's, I mean, that always sticks with me. I find that quite shocking and horrific. So obviously I've, I've had to portray this in a certain way because the book is written for children 8 to 12 years old. And it's going to be used in the Roots and Shoots education program that's basically linked with the Jane Goodall Institute. And again, like the BNF model, all, all proceeds are going to go towards local education, specifically in South Africa, and to the Chimpanzee Rehab Centre. And the other book um, was something I started a while ago. It was basically it's uh, 20 short fieldwork stories of mine. And it started off as something that it was just to remind myself, because I've had so many weird field experiences. Uh, some really ghostly ones, uh, which are really, really scary. Uh, other ones which are just really, really funny and quite some incredible ones as well. So I started writing it down for myself and then someone read a couple of chapters and said, wow, this was really fun to read. And they said, I think you should make it into a book. So now I, I'm trying to find time to, it's like my hobby at the moment is writing this book and it's so much fun. So I, I don't, I haven't quite finalised a title yet or anything, but it's going to be some play on field work or something. But I'm, I'm hoping it'll be a good read. Oh, that sounds amazing! I'm very, ex very excited for that. So, is your plan to 
to self-publish that or to try and put together a proposal and go to publishers or what, what's the what's the thinking there? So the Jane Goodall one, we're going to self-publish that. We raised a thousand pounds again through crowdfunding um, to cover the costs of that, and then we're just donating them all to the Roots and Shoots in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, the field workbook that I'm working on, I'm going to try and get that published uh, properly through mainstream publishers. Um, I'm not sure which ones yet. I'm also looking at um, travel guides uh, because often they they like you know sort of fun, you know, real life field work stories and things like that or real travel stories so I might try that route because I think that's probably more where I would like it to be published but otherwise I'll just just see where I get lucky really I think it's going to be a slog to get it published to be honest Mm, okay maybe let's we can circle back to that after the after we've finished recording I might have a couple of contacts that might be useful for that we can amazing we can maybe touch back on that at the end um I just wanted to I I think this might be my last question actually um I just wanted to kind of ask how it feels now working with the Jane Goodall Institute and presumably having a little bit of contact with Jane Goodall herself after she was such an inspiration to you when you were younger. Oh my God, it's so amazing. It's like every primatologist's dream. Uh, So I first met her whilst um, I was doing a trip in Uganda and we have a mutual friend who is a wildlife photographer and I remember one morning, it was my last morning of being in Uganda. So we'd had an amazing experience. We'd seen the wild chimpanzees. We'd seen the gorillas. And that morning he said to me, do you want to come for tea with Jane? And I laughed and thought he was, you know, taking the mick out of me. And I was like, of course. And he said, well, well, I'm going. Do you genuinely want to come? Yes or no? <laughs> so I went along in good humor. I thought, where is he going to take me? We're going to go somewhere <laughs> Because he's a big he's a big jokester as well, so I, I thought he's gonna take us somewhere dumb. Uh, and no, we pull up to the Jane Goodall, Goodall Institute in, in Uganda, in in Tebe, and I was I was just so shocked, and I, I suddenly my heart started beating, and I was like, is he being serious? And we pull in, and we get out, and then Jane is just sat there having breakfast on her own, and we just go and we joined her for breakfast, and it was insane. And her and I, I just, this was before I started my job with BNF, her and I just chatted nonstop about primates, about BNF, the work I was going to be doing there. And she was so interested. And she said, take my email address, email me. And so we've been emailing on and off ever since. And she's, how she makes time for people, I just do not know. But she always replies to an email you send her within a week. And I've sent her emails about loads of things to help raise awareness. She's then, two days later, I've seen it launched on her Jane Goodall Facebook, for example. When I was trying to raise awareness for BNF, she was so helpful. Um, Even with my Gibbon, she's been helping launch my Skywalker Hulot Gibbon crowdfunder for my PhD. She's just amazing. So, yeah, it's been really incredible. And then now, like I said, we still email and just keep in contact and... Yeah, I mean, I, I take my hat off to her. I think she's an incredible woman. And just giving, even just being able to give your time like that to people, I think is so rewarding for them. And she really deserves so much praise for that because so many other big names in conservation, you know, would never bother to reply to the little man. So, yeah, well done, Jane. You are awesome. <laughs> <laughs> is there any... Is there any particular advice that she's given you in person or over email that stood out to you or that you've put into practice? 
she always says to me, I commend your perseverance. And she says, just keep going. She always says that. And, you know, I do really agree with that. I think, you know, you can't wait for things to come to you. I do believe you've got to go out and put the hard work in for, you know, positive feedback to come your way. So I do agree with what she's saying. Don't ever give up because you'll also regret it. You know, if you miss out on opportunities, you'll regret it years down the line. So I agree with her. Keep going, whatever it is. You know, hopefully one day it will materialise. <laughs> well, I think that's a fantastic uh, note to finish on, unless there's anything that we we haven't touched on or that you wanted to say that we haven't covered. No, you are so thorough. You've been amazing, Matt. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, <laughs> that's great. Thanks so much, Kaz. I really enjoyed that. Me too. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org on Twitter at wildvoicesproj or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much and until next time. <laughs>